1: This is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. I spoke with Professor Britt Russert at the University of Massachusetts Amherst about the 2017 book Fugitive Science. Although the book came out nearly five years ago and has already earned accolades from the American Studies Association and the MLA, the book's now getting traction in STS, History of Science, and History of Medicine, and it's easy to see why. At a top level, the book documents simply, but importantly, the empirical work, rhetorical strategies, and material worlds of Black and African-American scientists during the antebellum period. The book connects a lineage of Black naturalists, ethnologists, and physicians who are documenting and explaining what they already knew to disbelieving white racist audiences, namely the moral and political quality of Black Americans relative to white people and the injustice of the institution of slavery. And they were pursuing their own empirical research, not only working in response to white racist science about the pasts and the potential emancipatory futures of Black Americans. The documentary work of the book is indispensable in its own right. And for scholars in STS and history of science and medicine, the book is important for anyone interested in speculative methods and speculative histories, anyone who takes seriously theories of history and wants to, or already is, practicing transformative justice through their own narrative craft. The book demonstrates one way of creating an anti-colonial, anti-racist counter-archive through an intentionally magpie accrual of material culture and rigorous use of imagination as interpretive method. In the interview, we also talk about Sadia Hartman's method of critical fabulation, Haraway's critical speculation, and Marissa Fuente's technique of reading with the archive bias. The interview is a collective project between myself and graduate students in STS at Vanderbilt University. They're Kaylee Belletto, Hannah Crook, Aaron Hunt, Will Krauss, Dion Lucas, Esther Park, Grace Smith, Mackenzie Yates, and J. Hoon Yu. So I will begin by saying this is Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University and uh, also graduate students in the course, Introduction to Science and Technology Studies. And we're really excited to be talking with Professor Britt Russert about the book, Fugitive Science, Empiricism and Freedom in Early African-American Culture. And so one of the things I wanted to start off just by asking you to talk about, Britt, is that the book has uh, won lots of awards. It's won awards from the MLA, from, uh, the, uh, from American studies as well. And we're of course coming at the book through the lens of science and technology studies. And the book is so hugely relevant to, to STS. It's really, um, it's really important. And so rather than have you narrow yourself and identify yourself in some interdisciplinary form, I wonder if you could just sort of open out and talk about the different disciplines that you do at various times align with. So basically help us think about um, how you look at the world as a scholar from various, your various positions.
2: Well, maybe I'll tell you something about the idiosyncrasies of my own graduate education, because I think that's sort of a one key to understanding this in some ways idiosyncratic book. Um, So I received my PhD in English at Duke University in undergrad, I had been pre-med, I went to a liberal arts college in um, uh, Northwest Pennsylvania school called Allegheny College, and I was doing biology and also English. I thought I would go to medical school, and then my junior year of college, I did an internship at a local hospital, and I fainted the first time that I saw blood. And so I realized after that, that I needed to think about different career options. And luckily, I had had amazing mentors in English. I took a junior seminar with one of my beloved professors, David Miller, on literature and medicine. And I had another amazing undergrad advisor, Ben Sloat, who supported a very interdisciplinary senior project, on the history of sexology and Radcliffe Hall's Well of Loneliness. So I ended up um, kind of You know, some people find their way, I think, to STS through graduate school. Um, I sort of like searched like from the beginning for a grad program that would allow me to kind of have enough humanities approach to science. So I think maybe that was a little unique that I sort of started to think about an interdisciplinary approach to science and culture early on. And I was excited to apply for, to Duke's English um, program because I knew that it was like historically an important place for queer theory, which was another thing I was focused on in undergrad. Um, and I also knew that there were people working on STS topics. Um, so then when I got to grad school, I still was sort of, you know, Duke is a very interdisciplinary place. I think it shares some like interdisciplinary interests, I think Vanderbilt, I think it was very sim- similar in certain ways in terms of those sorts of methodological and interdisciplinary commitments. So when I went, so at, at Duke, I was just sort of very naturally taking classes in different departments. I took classes in anthropology, in comp lit, in English, in African-American studies and gender studies. And it wasn't until I left grad school that I realized, I found out that that's not actually that common to be able to Take classes in that kind of way. So my sh- my thinking was just sort of shaped from those experiences, from taking lots of different classes in different departments. Um, and I continued to, you know, really be interested in questions related to um, science and gender. Um, but the thing that kind of blew me away at Duke was, you know, there's an amazing African American Studies department, and I just started reading and being exposed to more African American literature um and also to you know when I was going through grad school something that you know we now call queer of color critique and it sort of allowed me to reflect back to my undergrad days and to realize that when I was learning what was then called lesbian and gay studies that it was like really white and so I don't know so my my thinking sort of shifted and I just had amazing mentors in African-American studies at Duke um and and that that sort of that's how I sort of ended up with this sort of eclectic mix of interests, I think, that you can see on display, I hope, in this book. So there's a little bit of STS, a lot of, you know, Black history and literature um, in there. And I think I also was just sort of inspired by my own historical actors who themselves didn't adhere to certain kinds of um, disciplinary boundaries, right? Um, And when I look back to my own graduate education, I think I was encouraged to like do that kind of thinking. And so that's, I think in some ways, maybe what attracted to me to these particular figures and also to this moment in the 19th century before the disciplines like really hardened in a certain way. Um, And so, yeah, so I guess that's sort of an interesting thing. But again, I guess I would just say that some of this stuff You don't realize until the book is out. Now I look back at it and I realize, wow, this was like really shaped by a very particular moment when I was in grad school and a very particular set of like professors and classes I was taking. Um, And then I guess the final thing I'll say is that, you know, my PhD is in English um, and I was hired into an interdisciplinary Black Studies department. I teach at the Du Bois department, um, one of the earliest Um, black studies departments founded in the entire country. Um, And so when I arrived at UMass, I was suddenly in a department, you know, with political scientists, with historians, with other literary critics, all of whom are really historically grounded and informed. Um, And so I think, you know, the other sort of interdisciplinary part of this book is just about the natural interdisciplinarity of black studies. Um, And, I think that some of the kind of like bolder claims that I make um, that are about like making contemporary connections, or when I kind of move to the 20th century, or when I think about, you know, the Black Panther Party, or I'm thinking about sort of radical politics and science today, a lot of that I can credit to my time in the Du Bois department.
1: Mm-hmm that's really fascinating yeah i mean even thinking about your your phd from duke it kind of resonates because there is such also a strong um approach towards uh, feminist theory at duke as well in addition to all the other points um and black yeah. studies and black literature that you mentioned
2: that was um, my other
1: home oh fantastic fantastic yeah. um Yeah. So the um, so you are on faculty at University of Massachusetts at Amherst, again, in this really important and premier field um, uh, department in black studies as well. And so sort of um, shifting towards thinking about the book Fugitive Science, I wanted to um, have Jay hop in to because we've been talking in this class a lot about um, our method, our methods for analyzing uh, science in the present day, and also turning it back on ourselves to sort of think reflexively um, about our own investments and our own politics of research. So, Jaehoon, I just want to hand the mic over to you, and have you have you hop in and thinking about um, our own investments in research?
0: Yeah, sure. Um- As you're reading the book, I was wondering if there is any um, personal motivations that led you to um, study or or, um, delve into the concept of fugitive science or the materials you touched. Yeah, so because um, I think the relationship between the researcher and the materials um, she or he researches is really connected. So, yeah, I wanted to ask about it.
2: So, I, you know, I think some of it does go back to this, this, these, like early interests in sort of medicine and science and culture. Um, And I think that was sort of central to me thinking about black literature in the 19th century through a particular kind of lens. Um, I don't know if I have a super sophisticated answer to this question because part, partly the whole book generated out of my enthusiasm for one single text. (laughs) So, you know, I think it is interesting to think about personal motivation in terms of like, maybe like identity or subject position or personal history. But sometimes a personal motivation is like, just has to do with attachment to a particular object of study. Sometimes I think it's just like, maybe an archival discovery. This happens for historians, right? Like you happen upon something in a, in a collection. Um, and in my case, in graduate school, I read this serial novel published by Martin Delaney in 1859, Blake or the Huts of America. And I read it at, in the 1970 edition, which it's published as a book, but it was actually published in 1859 um, as a serial publication, first in the Anglo-African Magazine in 1859, and then in 1860 and 1861 in um, the weekly Anglo-African. And that text just like blew me away. And when I started to do a little bit more research into this publication, the Anglo-African magazine, I I realized that this was not like a literary magazine. It was a, I think of it as a kind of like Black New Yorker in late antebellum New York. Um, You know, it's a, there were, political treatises, medical treatises, there's statistics, original statistical works by, you know, prominent intellectuals like James McCune Smith, there's poetry, there's just a whole range of writing there. Um, and it, I was mostly, you know, struck by the coexistence of, um, you know, scientific tracks with literature. And it really, you know, struck me that like, part of the, the kind of professionalization of African-American literary studies um, has in in some ways, when it comes to the nineteenth century been about like abstracting the literary from a broader discourse, right? Um, and that's what I think a lot of recovery work in the 90s, for example, and was about sort of like defining a, a canon. And so in part in this book and a lot of scholars who are working in Print culture and history of the book are doing this work now and have been over the past several years. So I don't think I'm doing anything new here, but I think I'm part of this trend of people almost trying to reinsert the literary back into this very heterogeneous print field. Um, and so, it Blake's. uh, Delaney's Blake turns into a different text when we read it in its original um, publication context, and it blew me away when I realized that there are chapters of Blake. There's a chapter called "The Fugitives" that appears literally next to Delaney's um, treatise on astronomy, where he's describing um, celestial bodies as fugitive bodies of you know, and he's like sort of interested in movement and fugitivity both you know, on earth and in these extraterrestrial valences. And so, yeah, so I guess that was part of my personal motivation was just, it just began with this, like an intense interest in this one text, and then connecting that text up to a broader historical and scientific context, um, and that that became the the crux upon which like the rest of the book unfolded. The rest of my research kind of came from that, um, and I can say more about this. But I will also say a personal motivation is just that this text, the Anglo African Magazine, just. It it just continues to be like a treasure trove for me in terms of my personal research Um, and my next book is on another text from the Anglo African magazines called the African American picture gallery and I'm writing a whole book about that one publication that also appears in the Anglo African magazine.
1: Oh, that's really exciting um okay so this is there's so much here um and what you what you've been talking about in terms of Delaney and um, this amazing book um Blake or the the huts of America so this is the topic of chapter four and so the the book um, unfolds um, somewhat chronologically though it's not necessarily a, a strictly empirically history uh, empirical history um but I'll, I'll take us we'll we'll get back to, ch- to chapter one and how you launch us off, but I just want to um, fill in a few nuts and bolts, so the book overall is looking at the, at antebellum United States so basically post uh, Western enlightenment um, sort of the formation of the United States of America. Through ballpark of the the Civil War in the United States. And you're specifically interested in black and African American people. Who uh, regard themselves and are regarded as empiricists, and so you know, as, as we know, the uh, the formal term of science was coined officially in the early 19th century, and all these sorts of things. Um, but you're using the term "fugitive science" to refer to forms of empiricism, um, which are entirely dependent for that for the historical actors on um, on evidence. Using different criteria of evaluation for what counts as, as good evidence and bad evidence, and how and how you um, and how you judge those kinds of things. And um, so, one of the things that is especially um, I feel like uh, evocative and admirable about the book is that it distinguishes um, sort of dominant Western white science or natural history in particular from what you call fugitive science. And also, um, you point, make the, the important point that fugitive science is not pseudoscience. So, it, there were standards for empiricism and standards of evidence. Um, and so, here, I'm actually, I want to hand the floor over to Hannah because we've been thinking a lot about um, how you're profiling in the book a set of historical actors who use fugitivities or a form of of speculation to do empirical study of natural history, basically about like the human condition generally. Um, And yet you're also enacting this in your own method. So you're using speculation as a method. And um, this is especially relevant for um, the speculative method that you use in chapter four in writing about Delaney and about, about Blake as well. So Hannah, I just want to hand the floor over to you to hop in and, um, and, and pull this out a little bit more.
3: Yeah, so as Professor Stark already kind of hinted to, I really enjoyed your use of speculation in the book, both in the fourth chapter, and then especially for me in the fifth chapter, when you were describing the life and the work of Sarah Maps Douglas, especially just given that so few historical records exist for Black women for this time period, especially you know Black women who were engaged in this fugitive science. I was curious if you had thoughts on the role of speculation for Black scholars and scientists more broadly speaking, and also if you have thoughts on what makes for an effective speculation practice.
2: Oh, that's that second question. I don't know. I don't think I want to adjudicate that because, you know, it's sort of similar to the question of like, what counts as fugitive science? Like, I just kind of use this as an umbrella term that I hope is like, a, that help is like a way to like, organize these really various and like, heterogeneous comportments to science into knowledge production. But I don't really want to like, I don't want it to become its own like kind of like rubric that's about like classify I guess I don't want it to become its own classification scheme right I just want it to be capacious and expansive um and so I guess in that way my enterprise is kind of like a modest one it's just sort of like noticing <laughs> these like really interesting diverse engagements with empiricism like throughout this period um you know and in in some of this is just really simple it was just like me going back to black periodicals in the antebellum period and like realizing that there's like a robust engagement with with emerging scientific discourse in the period, which I don't think that's like a super radical or important intervention. It's just the case that there's a certain narrative about racist science and about the rise of racial science um, in the 19th century that I think is such a powerful and intense story that it's like weirdly obscured, like anti-racist science. And it's also like kind of obscured like black engagements with science. And so that's part of what this book is really about. And then I just sort of came up with this fancy term fugitive science as a way to sort of talk about that, right? Um, But in terms of like, what makes for a good speculative practice, I think I just have to like defer to my figures, right? Um, And um, I think I'm I'm becoming over time a little less invested in certain theories of empiricism that were really important to me when i wrote the book um, because i think i've started to realize that there's other ways in which black thinkers were drawing from like religious traditions to make like other claims about knowledge and knowledge production and i think they're really interesting as well so i i've written uh, another piece that will be coming out hopefully in the next year that's about like ideas of immaterialism in black antebellum thought um, and so I talk about like Nat Turner, who's actually like, he's willfully anti empiricist, right? Like he's, he, he does not care at all about like evidence in the world. He, he is, he, he, authority for him comes from divine inspiration and from his own powers of capacity and his own brain power. Which so I think, I think in, in increasingly, I'm just sort of interested in how like actors during this period in engage, of course, that's actually an engagement with empiricists. It's like a willful resistance to theories of empiricism, right? So I guess that's just to say that I'm sort of interested just in the, in this kind of like expansive terrain of engagements with empiricism um, that would include more speculative engagements. Um, Would you, Hannah, remind me what your first question was? Because since I dodged your second question... (laughs) Maybe I'll do a better job with
3: the first one. Um, The first part of my question was more just kind of broadly speaking, what do you think the role speculation has to play when chronicling the lives and the work of black scholars and scientists I think in that chapter you made a really good point that in a lot of context speculation is how we don't kind of ignore or forget these scientists and these scholars since there aren't kind of these textual records to draw from. So just if you have thoughts on the role of speculation when thinking about black scientists and scholars more broadly.
2: Yeah, and I'm thinking about that, You know, again, that black feminist idea that when you're working in this period, like the alternative to speculation is actually silence And that's not sufficient or okay and so speculation is actually like an ethical imperative for those of us who work on the history of slavery and on these archives right so again there i think my work in thinking about these archives of science i'm just following what others in the field have been doing for a while um and yeah so i think that was i think that's really central for me i also think it's just the case that like you know, since these are figures who were excluded from institutions, we think about someone like Martin Delaney, right, who's like, accepted into Harvard and then rejected. And then like, right, I mean, that is like a particular kind of violence, right, to be accepted into medical school, and then to get there and then to be thrown out, right? I mean, I think that these I sometimes with these figures, like with with Delaney, with McCune Smith, with Banneker, um, I was really interested in like, like a moment of like nominal inclusion or partial inclusion And how uh, something about like inclusion followed by exclusion can actually produce conditions for radicalization of thought, which I just noticed that a lot of those figures after they're kind of like included and then excluded from science, from particular kinds of institutions of learning, that's kind of when they like go into the speculative mode, because I think it's like easier for them to take risks. And I think many of them sort of like experience a sort of like disenchantment with the, with, with like mainstream science or with like more mainstream discourse. And, but if you, I like to think about someone like Delaney, like he clearly learned a lot about comparative anatomy, about different forms of science when he was at Harvard. And we just see his like own scientific engagements get increasingly like surreal and speculative as his career proceeds. Um, And I think in part that happens because like, the stakes change. I think it also happens as like things intensify leading in the years leading up to the civil war, like politically things thing, like I think speculation becomes more important. Um, And I also just think it's the case that the the, like fugitive science is also, is also about the kind of like um, uh, creative use of science for political means. Um, And so I think that's part of what interests me in this book is that like there's some things I talk about that it's not like about just like instrumentalizing science, right? It's about like um, putting science to um, really creative use. And, you know, and I think that's actually central to speculation, thereby answering your second question, maybe. <laughs> Thank you for that. That great question. Hannah. I have a feeling that you have a better answer, though, than, than I than I gave. I, I would not say that at all. <laughs> I think your answer was
4: Thank wonderful. you for your question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so so one of the things I do, and I, and I think uh, Hannah and others would also want to emphasize, though, and actually to um, to sort of give a little bit of courage here, um, Britt, is that um, the idea of speculation, it's, it's not... It could be in some contexts, speculation equals guesswork. And of course, speculation in that period had a very particular meaning when imagination as a method was really, um, appreciated and valorized. So it was a totally legitimate method to imagine things. Um, but one of the, one of the meanings that you're giving to speculation also in your own method of being speculative, but as Hannah mentioned, both in chapter four on, uh, on Delaney, but especially in chapter five, when you're, um, Writing about uh, Sarah Maps Douglas and thinking about the friendship albums and and all of her really important empiricist work, that you mean um, that you mean speculation also as in future oriented, as in like speculative fiction that we can even think uh, of folks in STS using today as a method. So speculation isn't um, simply just a, a smattering or anything goes, but it has a particular orientation to it um
2: and could i I add one thing too it's also the case that like i think sometimes they're drawing from a tradition of imagination that was valorized before the enlightenment or before like more and so that's sometimes i think there's a really interesting anachronism right when like you know when these figures are confronted with like the sheer racism of comparative anatomy and the sheer sheer like you know just like prejudice of the discourses of the day. One of the things that they that they do is actually pull from science in the 18th century, which I think was in some ways, just like, of course, like empiricism is absolutely about imagination, but it just like needs to to uh to kind of like cover that up in certain ways right it has to like disavow its relationship to imagination and creativity um and so i love that this work in some ways it's like not future looking i mean of course the yeah, speculation is always about like the future of emancipation the future of fugitivity the future of freedom but in some ways it's like a throwback that it's like really open about its interest in um speculation and imagination in a way that looks much closer to like 18th century science um, than 19th century science.
1: Yeah. So, so the um, the people that you profile are always referring out to some kind of uh, source or grounding um, from a variety of places. They're not just uh, um, claiming that something is their own opinion, but there's something about fugitive science where it's actually enrolling enrolling other. Um, other kinds of texts, like as you write about in chapter two on um, on ethnology, um, classical texts and uh, biblical exegesis, and and these sorts of things. And one of the one of the other pieces that seem to be really um, kindred with this book, I'll just um, also mention in case you have ever anything to say, is uh, Marcia Fuentes' idea of. Um, reading with the archive bias, so instead of the sort of reading against the grain, actually um, saying, "Well, there is something in the archive which we know is a project of empire, et cetera, et cetera," uh, but reading between the lines of what is what is actually there. Um, and so, I'm also going to give you your own words on what is on what is fugitive science, which is um, that you say it's a sort of practice. Practices um, in non-academic and non-institutional spaces. And one of the things you say is that part of the work it's doing is documenting the very flexibility of the idea of sort of knowledge and knowledge production in the antebellum period. So it's it's basically sort of a, an obvious um, extension and implication of the fact that what is today uh, sort of after the later 19th century in dominant Western white science um, uh, formalized under the banner of science was a really open field at this point in time. so I want to get uh, have you talk more about Delaney and also about Banneker who kind of launches off our story. But, but before we do that, um, I do want to ask Will if he could maybe hop in and talk a little bit more about the issues of interpretation that are going on here.
0: Yeah, so um, I um, really loved uh, the sort of reception history that you sketch out in the first chapter um, in which you sort of trace uh, uh, interpretations, uh, reinterpretations and readings of Thomas Jefferson's notes. Um, And uh, you sort of, and and this sort of ties into uh, sort of the threads of conversation um, that were already going on. Um, But uh, there's a sort of a a lot of thematic attention to uh, the idea of creativity uh, and the idea of production um, in the sort of readings and rereadings of um, Thomas Jefferson's work. Um, And so, I'd be really interested to hear you talk um, methodologically about um, uh, where you see the line between a sort of a textualist reading uh, of of a sort of text object um, and their sort of uh, uh, their reinterpretations or their rereadings um, by by Banneker and McCune Smith um, like like these sort of creative uh, reinterpretations of. Uh, sort of original texts. Um, I'd be curious to know how you sort of trace a reception history um, through that and where those sort of boundaries are.
2: Yeah, I did not expect to do this part of the book, but in my research, it was just like notes on, you know, notes on the state of Virginia is like so canonical. I would be curious, I'm guessing in like history of science courses and SDS courses, I'm guessing that like famous query that right where um, Jefferson gives the hierarchy of the races and I'm guessing that this is like taught a lot and in American
1: is that not true Laura well, I, I'll just jump in and say um, that, so the the issue of uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, circa 1791 notes on the state of Virginia, there is one of the notes is on the hierarchy of races. And what's really interesting is that, at least from my perspective, in, um, in STS and in history of science, sort of the... Um, the kind of first level approach to this kind of work, the idea of a hierarchy of races is generally attributed to a a later period. And, um, you know, in in subsequent chapters, you write about, uh, for example, the implications of um, indigenous dispossession and its relationship to enslavement and sort of access to land and access to bodies. And it's at that that moment, which you do um, also discuss later in the book, in which STS, in, in my view, um, sort of first approaches the history of a hierarchy of races. So your work on, um, on Jefferson and especially on Banneker and how Banneker responds to Jefferson and then how subsequent Black intellectuals and, and empiricists Um, work with Banneker to create this continuous lineage. And so it's this lineage that's fugitive science um, coming off of Banneker that's really important. So anyhow, I just wanted to flag the the time period around 1790s and uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, secretary of state at that time, and uh, his notes on the state's, uh, state of Virginia. So I'll, I'll let you Doug. Uh, uh, oh no, go. that's
2: super helpful. I mean, I think that these like black responders to notes on the state of Virginia were were prophetic. They understood that the arguments that he was making um, in which he sort of, you know, it's a hierarchy of like white people, then native people, and then um, people of African descent with this question mark regarding African humanity. From Banneker on, um, Black intellectuals understand that this document is like dangerous. And it's so interesting to hear that that sometimes that periodization um, about sort of hierarchies, ethnological hierarchies of the races is, is seen as coming later, because these fugitive science scientists, these figures knew, in some ways knew what was coming. And what really struck me um, in my research when I was trying to like Trace some kind of like genealogy of fugitive science. It was like notes on the state of Virginia just kept coming up again and again and again. And it's, it's fascinating that like Banneker sees it and sees fit to respond, you know, in a very polite way, in a very constrained way um, in, you know, through the sort of um genre of an 18th century letter um you know he sort of like responds in the way that he could in that particular moment given his station and his position and then the response is you know from there on out people sort of pick up not on jefferson i don't want to say that jefferson is the founder of fugitive science but actually on banneker right banneker's response i think is like the origin of fugitive science and it's so powerful how you have james pennington you have james mccune smith many um editorials in black newspapers, continuing to cite Banneker on Jefferson, um, and continuing to see like the ongoing perniciousness of Jefferson's ideas, because it's not just the case that Jefferson sets up this hierarchy. He actually, and I talk about this in the book, you know, it's actually, it's not just like a, um, Ethnology—that this is like a theory of the races—it's like a pernicious invitation to exper— to actually experiment on bodies. And I—I I think it's really interesting that Black um, print culture and these intellectuals pick up on that, respond to that, and you know, this gets to to your question, Will, about it's not just about like their response, but the creativity of their response. And I actually say that within these responses to Notes on the State of Virginia, we can track like a genealogy of like black humor and a kind of like really, um, a kind of like sardonic wit that really characterizes a lot of black writing in the antebellum period. Because it's, 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 it's such an interesting move because they see that Jefferson's theories are dangerous and they also don't want to give him that much power, and so at the same time as they're critiquing him, they're just like dragging him <laughs> over and over and over again. And so I love I talk about you know this moment in one text when when Pennington is like, oh, like Jefferson says that we should you know basically dig people up and 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 um, examine them to to determine if these racial differences actually here in the body and. He's just like, why don't we dig up Jefferson? You know, which is like, so, I mean, that's, it's, it's really intense. Um, and you can imagine like black readers kind of like smiling to themselves with this, with this kind of like invitation back. Um, and, and so, so I guess this is to say that like, This, it is absolutely true. Will, I'm really glad that you point out this question of like creativity because it's in this whole genealogy of fugitive science. It's not, you know, it's not just that um, uh, black writers, intellectuals, performers, and artists are at pains to debunk claims in racial science. That's actually just like the beginning. And I talk about some figures who just like decide like, they're not going to spend time and energy trying to prove black humanity. I think and I think for actually most, if not all of those figure these figures, they know that is already established and that is true. And so they decide to start somewhere different. And in that way, I think the creativity is really important. Because if you think about one of the arguments of racial science in this period is it's about like arguments about, um, you know, about um, black inhumanity It's arguments about like um, mental capacity, about intellect, about like the intellect. And in a way, uh, these like really funny, smart, interesting responses through their form, like they, they like, they just, they are also about an affirmation of black being and humanity. And in that way, I think that there's, it's just sort of like there are critiques you can read of these theories of um, racial science, but it's also just like their very being and their existence that also does a lot of work in terms of um, tearing down those forms of science.
1: Yeah, this is so, um, so great. Will, did you wanna hop in or are you all set? I thought I was. I thought I was jumping on your word, so I didn't want to uh, interrupt you. But, um, uh, Britt, what I wanted to to also add was that um, I just want to underscore what's so clear from the book, which is that um, the genealogy of fugitive science it is not uh, a set of discrete responses to Jefferson. Um, it is instead uh, various uh, empir- black empiricists and um, and intellectuals actually working off of Banneker while also really closely engaging um, Thomas Jefferson, but kind of not not necessarily giving it um, giving it m- more too much more airtime, but really that that Banneker is the, is the key, the, the real catalyst here. And um, it was both, um, I think sort of inspirational and seemed entirely appropriate that you were admiring of these actors, including uh, Banneker and others um, for their practice of study in the Moten and Harney under, under common sense of study in which there wasn't an unthinking rejection uh, of Thomas Jefferson's uh, Notes on the State of Virginia, but there was a deep engagement with it within uh, Black intellectual uh, and empiricist thought in order to um, both dismantle it, but move beyond it. So it's, it was not just the critique. It, it's as Will was pointing out, it's the real creativity um, creativity around it. And so um, just to emphasize the, the people in the book are not anti-science. Um, they're just uh, in the spirit of Fanon, who also kind of is a figure that who, who appears throughout the book in the spirit of Fanon, it, um, is actually um, uh, supportive of a non, uh, an, an anti-colonial and more emancipatory form of science.
2: So here actually... Yeah, I think one other thing, one of the reasons why I wanted to call these figures scientists was just that so much work has been done to call all kinds of like white men across history scientists, right? Like Jefferson gets called a scientist, this person's a scientist, everybody's a scientist, these people who gather some flowers outside, they're scientists. And so it just thought, I just thought, this is a term that gets so even in the history of science, right, gets so expansively used to describe white men, (laughs) sort of like, from 1492 on and so i don't know i don't i just thought wh- why these these are figures who also were deeply learned in scientific fields who are often autodidacts right who like learned in um really interesting ways and were engaged with science and so i think that we should be able to consider them scientists as well
1: yeah, here, here, uh, we totally appreciate that. Um, and one of the things that you're, that also sort of uh, takes us uh, back up to Delaney and, and his piece, the speculative, speculative fiction and your work with speculating around it, uh, Blake, or the, um, the Huts of America, is that uh, he was a physician. And one of the episodes that you give us in the book, in in chapter four in particular, um, because this is a book about um, sort of the legal political apparatus of the United States in a transnational context, um, that you show uh, Delaney on a trip to Britain in which he's at the Royal Society and he's actually um, delivering a paper there which is subsequently published. But what you're getting at also in in your interpretation of it is um, the the status of enslavement um, and the politics of enslavement and the differences between Britain and the United States and the the issues that are going on there. But I want to um, pull out what the work that you're doing in this book on showing how um, black empiricists and intellectuals are using style, are using genre in order to intervene and interrupt um, because you show Delaney at the scientific meeting um, sort of after he's been uh, praised as a a scientist and also being there and there's been, and Britain in response to American politicians who were there uh, saying, look, we, we we will have Delaney um, who is an African American at our meeting, and this wouldn't happen in the United States. And um, one of the U.S. Uh, the representatives from the U.S. state of uh, Georgia actually leaves the meeting in a big in a big protest. But Delaney, um, Delaney says, after the, the British group um, sort of backtracks on just saying, well, we didn't really mean mean that much politically by this. Delaney says, um, in this most uh, elegant sort of way, I rise your Royal Highness to thank his Lordship, the unflinching friend of the Negro for the remarks he has made in reference to myself and to assure your Royal Highness and his Lordship that I am a man. So drawing the distinction between, um, around what's going on with racializing him in particular and just saying, no, I'm a, I'm a person here and I'm also a, a scientist. Um, and so you use this wonderful phrase that you feel like um, the actors in this book are, and in life in general are really radicalized after being excluded on the heels of having actually just been included. And so it's sort of that um, back and forth process that really leads to radicalization and leads to Delaney also writing, writing his speculative um, utopian piece. Um, But but one of the things this does also, as as you show, and I wanna underscore, I am a man, that you you then move on in chapter five to point out the, the gaps and the intersectionality of the archive in your work on Sarah Maps Douglas in particular. So you have a real, um, you have something here to say also about the way in which women and um, African-Americans have been studied in this history. And you wanna talk through these, these intersectional issues. Um, and so here I, um, yeah, I just want to ask you if you could just open up on that and what you're trying to get at in particular with your study of uh, of Sarah Maths-Douglas.
2: Well, again, this is something that I, I didn't really figure out until after I finished the book. I realized, oh, Black women were the ones act, were doing the real fugitive science because, you know, they, there were very few black women intellectuals during this period who they did they knew that they weren't going to be they weren't going to be invited to, to Britain to speak before these like audiences right like they, they weren't going to be accepted into Harvard Medical School but you do have you know women like Sarah Maps Douglas other women um, who were working as educators who were you know educating black youth and children and who were um, uh, you know, doing that work like under the radar <laughs> consistently throughout this period. And, you know, they did not, I think, have that same process of um, disenchantment or sort of radicalization vis-a-vis exclusion because they because they, they um, were not going to be in general um, welcomed into those spaces. So it, it took me, I you mean, know, it's interesting, I have a sense, even though it's, again, this has to be speculative because so much of this work was, was happening in like Sarah Mapps Douglas's parlors, right? Like this was happening in, in parlors, in, in churches, in these private spaces. We just don't have like archives and documents of what was happening there. But I have a sense from having read as much as I could read about Sarah Mapps Douglas, you know, she was a, um, She was uh, trained for, for a time in medical school in Philadelphia. She was a beloved teacher and instructor at the Institute for Colored Youth in Philadelphia. I worked on her for a long time before I realized, oh, in her parlor, when she was teaching hygiene, to young women and, and, and girls, she was. they were talking about sex. They were talking about bodies. They were learning about that. That's what was happening there, right? Um, and I mean, it's, a, it's sort of something having to do with like the politics of respectability, the protection of black womanhood in black print. It has to do with Victorian ideology. So many different layers of things sort of congeal To shroud this knowledge from us, but I think that's what was happening there right, Um, so I don't know it's sort of a delicate thing in this chapter, because I really wanted to showcase her work, Um, you know she was she taught at the school for years she did these um, kind of like home education, I think sex education classes in her in her home. Um, She also was contributed to these beautiful friendship albums that black women in Philadelphia circulated um, amongst themselves. Um, And I and I wanted to show the various ways that she was engaged with science, um, scientific illustration with medicine um, during this period. But I also kind of wanted to like Honor the these these spaces that Erica Armstrong Dunbar talks about as being protected spaces for Black women in the period. Um, so I don't know. I'm I hope I did an okay job of that. But you know, there's there's a way in which um, they were they they were there were. I guess this is just to say I didn't really want to like expose this whole culture of science. Um, because there's such like a there was so much work put into like creating these kind of protected spaces. Um, and again, this is just a place where I'll say that like, if I had to start the project again, I probably would have begun with Sarah Maps Douglas. I mean, it sort of made sense in some ways historically to have her later in the book. But I think in some ways, she's at the end of the book because she because, you know, she, as a as a black woman, sort of like um, posed a problem for me in terms of how I was conceiving of fugitive science. And I think actually pointed out to me some of my own like biases in terms of um, like gender, right? And so it's just, for me, I, I would love if someone did a whole a whole project about like black women's science during this period. Cause I think there's a, there's a lot more to say, but again, like I think it would involve like, you know, um, different archives, different narratives and um, a different kind of work because you would look be looking you know, more at like private documents and manuscripts rather than, um, uh, rather than the kind of public documents that I rely on more in the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. Um, and we we only have a few minutes left, but um, I do want to ask uh, Kaylee to sort of dig in a bit about on this issue of um, of the status of evidence, especially in instances and figures um, like Sarah Maps Douglas, and um, and th- actually uh, taking seriously this invitation of of having work on. Um, on African American antebellum scientists and what and what this can help us understand.
5: Yeah, I think it's really apropos um, that you mentioned at the the tail end. You know, using um, using the evidence that's available and having to be creative in in that um, undertaking because it seems that um, you know within this book there is this massive uncovering and canonizing and um, you know creation of a narrative around um, interbellum fugitive science. Um, And you you have to look um, in in, in unique and novel places to find evidence um, of these of science that's occurring in maybe these non normative spaces. Um, and so, um, you know, you, we see this wonderful evidence that you bring from art, um, from various lectures and educational settings, and ultimately um, just like in the imaginaries um, that are crafted by these uh, Black fiction writers. Um, and so I'm wondering um, what aspects of um, your analytic approach um, and like your methodological approach to this book um, that you envision being maybe most portable either to other historians of science and of knowledge, production, or just like the broader scholarly community?
2: Well, I, that's a really, that's a great question. These reflexive questions are so hard. In STS, folks, you're always so good about asking the reflexive question. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I talk a little bit in terms of like my own reading practice in the introduction, or I say like, my attempt—I don't actually try to like pin down these texts and these works and like analyze them or sort of um, sort of dissect them. I I try to like kind of like move alongside them and to um, follow their own becomings and their own experiments. And I think you know th- this might not be obvious if you're not a literary scholar, but there is I hope a somewhat different like reading approach here. I'm not actually that interested in like, here's the plot summary, and now I'm gonna analyze the plot. Like, I don't, I'm not really like a completist like that. And the reason why is because I don't actually think that's how, I think black literature in the 19th century, especially in the antebellum period is like experimental and dynamic in a way that like empiricism helps us to illuminate that experimentalism. and so I just tried to, like, read my texts in that spirit. Um, and sometimes I think it can probably be a little frustrating for some readers who, like, you know, maybe they don't know about this text. It's the first time encountering it. They might not, like, gain <laughs> more, like, insight or, like, clarity about a particular text by reading my book. Um, but I don't actually think that's what that's what my figures were interested in. I think they were interested in all kinds of interesting ex- aesthetic experiments and like um, interested in how like assembling different forms of knowledge and different ideas together could produce something new. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I mean, if anyone's gonna take anything away from the book methodologically, I hope that it would be maybe that that method or that approach to texts. Um, and yeah, um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's, I guess that's all I would say. And then one other, I, I keep saying like regrets. I mean, writing, writing a ten a book for tenure is really in, intense. And I, when I look back at this, I realize I was so interested in like these non-institutional knowledges, but I was writing them with it within like very intense institutional constraints, right? Which was just like, I needed to write a book so I could be granted tenure. And there that's like an interesting dynamic, right? Where I wanted to talk about like knowledge in the production, the production of knowledge, like beyond the disciplines or outside of institutions. But secretly, the institution was like hovering over me at every turn. So sometimes I, I, you know, in my writing now, I'm trying to be like a little more experimental and a little more creative and maybe care even a little less about some of those disciplinary norms. Um, But uh, it's something I hope that shines through a little bit in the book.
1: Regardless of uh, of sort of the demands being put on you, I think that we all found it really inspirational in thinking through our own methods and how um, you were both learning with the historical actors about how to do a speculative a speculative um, project. As by watching how they were doing it, um, so that's why there was so much invitation here. I feel like for sort of a reflexive, a reflexive praxis. Um, but you've, you've also made this a very um, uh, exciting idea of how you would do the book differently. So you would start with Sarah Mapps Douglas, for example, potentially in this in this other in this other world. And here, I want to ask Dion to jump in and sort of develop this a little bit more. Um, just as our final question. For the day.
4: Thank you. So, Britt, I wanted to ask because there was a, a section in your book, I think it was chapter six, where you kind of talk about the invisibility and visibility as a strategy and why that was important. And then, kind of understanding today's time and going back to your earlier reference on the call about contemporary connections. So, with all of the different racial, fights that are going on in this country on so many different aspects with so many different nationalities. If you had to add a a new chapter, an additional chapter to the book, what would it be and why? Well, you can, my answer,
2: um, Dion is going to show that I'm really a 19th centuryist because I'm going to tell you about something I would want to say about the 20th century rather than the (laughs) 21st century. But, you know, at the very end, if you remember in my epilogue, I sort of end with this declension narrative about how like fugitive science sort of changes or sort of maybe goes underground again once we have, you know, um, a different structure of academic knowledge, once the institutions, institutions of science start emerging with the professionalization of science. So I sort of end there. But I had this like lingering question about like, okay, well, but where does fugitive science go? Um, and that's sort of what led me to my next project, which is, the, you know, this book of Du Bois's infographics, these amazing um, sociological images that um, W.E.B. Du Bois created with his students for the Paris Exposition in 1900. And I, I started to realize when I when I first saw those images and when I started like learning more about the context of their production. I was like, Oh, I think one of the places that fugitive science goes is actually to HBCUs okay. is so like, and but that just wasn't in terms of like the archives I was looking at for this project. And then in terms of like, you know, I had a lot of training in like early American archives and black periodicals in print. And then I had this sort of like training in like the archives of like science, I think, but the, the arc the kind of certain kind of like history of science, I don't think HBCUs are like really on the radar. Um, And again, that's like another thing I didn't really start thinking about until I arrived in my department. And um, I just started thinking about like, George Washington Carver, like these figures that we just like think about, and then just like, like, we're just like, don't like actually really engage with, who are really interesting figures. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, I think I would maybe add an epilogue that would end with Du Bois's infographics, because I think they display a certain spirit of fugitivity and and kind of fugitive science, not through Du Bois, because Du Bois had very specific you know, parameters and ideas that were about visibility and representation. So this kind of gets beyond your question about inv- the, the politics of invisibility and the politics of visibility, right? And wh- where do we go and how do we understand those? Du Bois was interested in visibility and representation, but this was a student project. And I've increasingly been become interested in how uneven the images are and how you can see that like, there's like definitely one student who like uses the colors of the Pan-African flag on purpose, right? You have this like this particular kind of color scheme, and then you get to these two images that are all black and green and red, right? So I've just been interested in sort of like, again, to get back to what Laura mentioned about the idea of study and black study, that in like student work, like if we might look at like HBCUs and other places where like black students are doing work, you know, in this later period, I think we can see fugitive science there. Um, And today, I think it is, I I think if I were going to do like another epilogue about today, I might write something about like mutual aid, um, black mutual aid, and the pandemic, and thinking about the ways in which people are, you know, because this is, this is also kind of like an anarchist history about how people take care of each other and find resources and produce knowledge when the state isn't taking care of them. And so I think that's what we're seeing today with people figuring out, you know, with like lack of a public health infrastructure that's adequate with like, you know, police brutality and all kinds of like assaults happening at every level like people are thinking um, in really robust ways about, you know, care about health. Um, and and so I think I probably would end with the, with the pandemic and thinking about mutual aid which is including many different kinds of health initiatives that I think would would have been of interest to the figures in my book
4: All right that's uh that's that's pretty awesome because I think about another class that I'm in at STS um, that is, You know we're discussing social media during the pandemic and then to me I see the numbers African Americans are much higher users of social media, and I think it's because it gives them that voice and the visibility to be heard and have an opinion and be included Um, that's a lot easier to access. Yeah,
2: and I love that connection because in my period the viral media would have been newspapers, right? And that is that is the primary archive for fugitive science for the book. So I I absolutely think like Twitter would have definitely been of interest (laughs) to these (laughs) figures.
4: Right.
1: Britt, thank you so much for your generosity with the time. And just um, you know, thinking of these um all sets of anarchist practices, fugitive science, mutual aid, um, so much to say about W.E. Du Bois and your work, your additional work on Du Bois and the data portraits. We also we also read um Cedia Hartman's um Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, um, and and the critical fabulation method that, yes. that
2: Partner. Oh, that's just an amazing method. of Getting back to speculation and the speculation that she does around around Du Bois himself in that book is just incredible. Thank you so much for being such careful and thoughtful readers of my book. I am, um, I'm like, I am extremely honored by it. It means a lot to me.
1: Thank you so much for your work. We've really appreciated it and grateful to you.